0: So up in our Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I've entitled the message this morning, The Judgment Seat of Christ. I find it interesting in light of um, um, the funerals that we're going to be having this week. We have, um, every time we have one, we have a handout bulletin that we give to people. And we always have on the uh, left-hand side, 2 Corinthians 5, the first four verses. And um, um, we'll be coming back to these verses in just a minute because it lays the foundation and framework for what happens after a person dies, then what? So let's look at the first eight verses here and we'll go more in depth in verses nine and 10. Uh, keep in mind that Paul is um, addressing a group of believers who will be hearing this for the first time. They've never heard of the judgment seat of Christ. Um, they uh, are very immature. Um, a church with a lot of problems in their immaturity So basically what Paul is doing here is talking about the brevity or just how short um, life is. And um, I remember texting um, one of Rosemary's daughters we were putting together the bulletin and we usually put the time of their birth and then the date of their death. And we didn't do that. I got together with the family but I forgot to... To get that information. So I texted her and she texted it back. And, and um, this is when Rosemary was born. And this is when she died. And then we have a dash in between. And your life is a dash. That's what it is. And it's very, very brief. So Paul, Paul here is explaining to the Corinthians uh, not only the brevity and the shortness, <clears throat> but he talks with certainty about what happens when a person dies. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Well, here we find that there's an if, and the if is a reference to those who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, And then implying that they have, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, it's just another word for your body. We groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. In other words, he lives in us now, but we haven't seen him. And there's this desire once you've come to the Lord like the song that we just sang, I wanna see you. I know you, I I feel your presence, but as the song says, it's just a glimpse, just a touch of what's going to be when we actually look at Jesus Christ face to face. And he's promised this this is going to happen by giving us the Holy Spirit now, the third part of the Trinity. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to add something right here that would further clarify this, that can be a danger that people can fall into, put you through unnecessary trials. And I would read it, for we walk by faith, not by sight, and I'm adding the word feeling to it. Because many people can be emotionally based and they will be—they—they—they they, they can go through a trial that they don't have to. But they feel like they should be going through a trial because things aren't turning out right and I don't feel good about it, period. Um, but that's your feelings. And it's not what the word says. We don't walk by faith. We don't walk by feelings. Uh, we do walk by, for we walk by faith and not, not by sight, or um, when we find ourselves in conflict with I feel this way but the word says this, what are you going to do? You have to discipline yourself. Feelings cannot be a part of the equation. Only this book can be a part of the equation. If I feel this way and and the scripture says something else, my feelings are wrong and the book is right. Good place for an amen. All right. For we are confident, yes, well-pleasing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And yet, um, unfortunately, that isn't the heart's desire of many, even in the church today. And so these first eight verses, Paul is explaining to them what happens the moment you die. And when we're in First Thessalonians 4 and um, Paul is talking about uh, those who have died coming back with him at the rapture of the church. That's clearly stated in, I think, 13 and 14. But then it seems to contradict itself when it talks about the dead and Christ risen first. And so if there's confusion there, what Chuck would always say is go to scriptures that would better clarify what you're thinking through here. Well, here's that Verse. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What does that mean? That means the moment that a person dies, if he is born born again, to be absent from the body, you're present immediately with the Lord. Therefore, now we have a therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now here's the order, as Paul's laying it out to the Corinthian church. The Bible says once to die, and then the judgment. But we have two judgments There's the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll be looking at this morning uh, for those that are saved, but if you're taking notes and you want to look this one up later, it's Revelation chapter 20, Um, it's called the Great White Throne Judgment, and the people that are standing at this judgment, the Bible says, are going to be judged according to their works, period, and we know that we're saved apart from works, Oh, we'll do good works because we are saved. But this group of people could have been very religious. There are denominations out there that require works for salvation. And that's simply not true. We're saved apart from works, even though if you're born again, you're gonna do good works. <laughs> Another good place for an amen. Uh, but we do it because we simply love the Lord. Paul said it's the love of, of Christ. I love the Lord. And that's why I'm compelled to do Why I do. That should be our motive. Then once to die and then the judgment so that the great white judgment, all these people will not have their names in the Lamb's book of life. And it says they will be cast into outer darkness or hell. No, hell is actually emptied. And this place of eternal punishment is not the place where the rich man died. Remember Rich Man and Lazarus? He died and he was found himself in hell. And he was totally aware, completely conscious, had a memory of his brothers. Abraham's bosom existed at the time. And um, all of a sudden, the reality sunk in. This is it. I'm going nowhere forever. And he had one request for Abraham. And that was, I have five brothers. They're just like me. They don't believe. Would you have Lazarus go and witness to him? And Abraham's answer was, they have this, let them read this. And they say, no, no, no. But if one would rise from the dead, then they would believe. In other words, if they saw a heavy duty miracle, then they would become believers. Well, there wasn't a Lazarus that was raised from the dead. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's dead for four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. There was a mixed reaction. A lot of people got saved. That's why the multitudes were so great on Palm Sunday. It was only a couple days later. But there was another part of the scribes and Pharisees go, well, we not only have to kill Jesus, we're gonna have to take Lazarus out too. He's He's a living witness. And so here is a miracle, a person raised from the dead, but that didn't convert the scribes and the Pharisees. They said, no, we've got to take out Lazarus now too. So we find, as Paul is um, laying this out, uh, the great white throne judgment. uh, This actually came up in conversation in men's prayer yesterday, that there's going to be more people in hell then there is going to be people in heaven. Narrow is the gate, few that find it, but wide is the gate, and broad, and many will find that. And I was talking with Jerry a little bit before the study and all that's going on in the world right now. And uh, his comment was Do you realize the percentage of people who really understand what's happening right now? He he went through this list. He said, You gotta be born again you got to be aware of Bible prophecy. You've got to have an understanding of what's taking place in the world from a biblical perspective. And his percentage was, let's just say it was under 5% in his opinion, and he's probably right. And um, um, it's important to um, talk about uh, the issues and how they relate to the times in which we're living. I'm watching ezekiel thirty nine unfold folks right now, and this is it in my notes and i wasn 't planning on talking much about it, but um, the things that are taking place right now russia's bringing more and more troops into syria and um, I better stop there <laughs> we'll we 'll bring that up in an update, but my point is that um, As Paul lays this out, the fact of the matter is there's more people going to hell. And this should be a motivation for us because we're still alive now to have the attitude of the rich man who died. Now the only thing he's concerned about is his five brothers. That should be our attitude right now because we do know what's coming down. And we do have loved ones. And a big part of this study this morning is the importance of witnessing And obeying the great suggestion. (laughs) No, the great commandment. To what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel. All the world. And then do what? And then I want you to teach them. To observe all the things that I taught you. Now I want you to teach them. The great commandment. So... This morning, we're going to be looking at not the great white throne judgment. This morning, we'll be looking at the judgment seat of Christ. So here's the order. We have the date of our birth. We have the dash. And we have the death. Or, there's one exception to that rule. And that is, there's one generation that's not going to see death. And I'm going to have you... Uh, We'll look at that, and that's the the rapture of the church. And after a person dies, he is with the Lord. Um, When you're raptured, you're with the Lord. Well, then what? What happens after the rapture? Look at verse 10 of our text this morning, and we'll be spending most of our time in these two verses. Therefore, Whenever there's a therefore, we ask, what's it there for? Well, um, you're going to die, and um, you'll be present with the Lord. Well, what happens when you're present with the Lord? Well, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done In the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I just want to, there's another name for the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema judgment seat of Christ. Are the Olympics over or is it still going on? Oh, today's the last day. Works into my Bible study perfectly. (laughs) Okay, the Bema seat is much like the Olympics. Isn't there some... uh, um, bad feelings going around because some of the Olympians that, that actually got medals are, are not being given medals. Um, or Anybody else hear that besides me? They, they were competing and they won but uh, their, their medal was being withheld. But the Bema seat judgment, um, the Greek word for Bema translated judgment seat in the King James Version was a familiar term to the people of Paul's day. Dr. Lehman Strauss writes, in the large Olympic arenas, uh, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the contest sat. Now, after the contests were over, the successful competitors, or the ones who won, would assemble before would assemble before the Bima to receive their rewards or crowns the Bema was not a judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat. Likewise, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial branch. The Christian life is a race. Paul talked about running the race and running to win. And the divine umpire is watching every contestant after the church has run her course either by dying or being raptured. He will gather every member before the Bema for the purpose of examining each one and giving the proper reward to each one. Now, we just read um, that after death, we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I need to take a little time because some people get confused where we're told we're going to... receive uh, what we've done. And then it says whether good or bad. And um, I need to just take a little time and clarify um, what this bad part is. If we read there's no shame or uh, guilt or anything like that, we need to clarify that this has nothing to do with sin. Um, From Romans chapter 14 Many verses speak of the judgment seat of Christ, but here's just one. Paul says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you sit at naught, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. So then let every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now this needs to be explained. The purpose of the beam of judgment is not to punish believers for sins committed either before or after their salvation. The scriptures are very clear that no child of God will ever have to answer for his sins after his life. I'm quoting Psalm 103 right now, which says he has not dealt with us according after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is higher above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Now that's Psalm 103. In Isaiah 38:17. I have blotted out thy transgressions and thy sins. Isaiah 44, verse 22. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, verse 19. For I will remember, be merciful, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And in the New Testament, 1 John 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Well, then why does it say bad, Dwight? Whether good or bad. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 6, and I'm going to give you an example of what Paul is referring to here. We'll we'll just look at the first uh, four verses here. Matthew 6, verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, uh, in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, Um, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, do it in secret. That your charitable deeds may be done in secret, and your heavenly Father who sees you in secret will what? Himself reward you openly. The meaning of good or bad is explained here. In other words, um, it's not a sin, but it's a wrong motive. Why you do what you do is what the Lord is always interested in doing. And um, there's a lot of grandstanders out there today that really want the attention and the glory focused upon themselves. Or I I always like the illustration of, uh, this, this isn't necessarily a believer, of you know these checks that are this tall and six feet long and uh, they're making a donation to this particular charity, and they, they got the cameras rolling, and uh, he's sitting there pointing at his name, that's my name on that $5,000 check right here. Well, he just got his reward. And that's what it means by bad, wrong motive. In other words, he's taking, when we do something, we want to we do it uh, because we love the Lord. Like Paul said, it's the love of Christ. I love the Lord, and that's why we do what we do. And so when we read this, whether good or bad, I believe it's talking about the motivation behind the action. Or judging your brother, Matthew 7, verse 1. This is one of the places where the Lord says, don't do that, that's my job. You don't do it because you don't know what's in that guy's heart. I know what's in that guy's heart. And I'll reveal that in my time, you let me take care of that, that's none of your business. And so um, that would also be considered what what I would consider a bad one. Um, Let me give you a couple examples here. Though it's difficult to know just what goes to make up a golden work, um, we need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter three at this time where we actually have a description of that day This is a picture of the judgment seat of Christ that Paul is explaining to the Corinthians. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now let me just give an example here. You might be, have been sharing with somebody for a long time. What that means is that um, you planted. You planted seeds in people's hearts. But you, not, you may not necessarily be around to see that person get saved. The Lord might use somebody else, like an Apollos, who continues to water the seed, the, the words that you used in witnessing. And the point that he's making is we're just planters We're just waters, that's all we are. It's the Lord that gives the increase, but God gives the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are his, God's field, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying that there's no other way for salvation. He's the cornerstone. We get saved and then we begin that uh, uh, sanctification process um, as he continues to change us as we grow from glory to glory. Um, Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, let's just stop there, these are things you can melt gold, but you can't make it disappear. You can melt you can melt silver, and um, it will remain silver. Different with wood, hair, straw. They are once they're set to fire, they perish. So we have six things mentioned here, but only two different really categories: something that remains, and something that perishes. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it. What day? The judgment seat of Christ. Because it will be revealed by fire. I use the example, don't judge your brother because you can't see what's in his heart. Well, the all-seeing eyes of the Lord sees right into that person's motive, why he did, what he did, and only God has the capacity to do that. You don't and I don't. Having said that, there is a place where the Bible says the spiritual man judges all things. Well, come on, I make up your mind. Which is it? Well, there's a difference between judging a person's heart and judging a person's doctrine, okay? And if there's something added to the gospel that we're saved by, faith through, by grace through faith, Period. And you start adding on something, and like they tried to do to the early church, they wanted these Gentiles to get circumcised. And Paul says, nope, not gonna happen. Peter said, that's, that's not, the Gentiles are saved simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, period. So it's gonna be tested, and Each one's work will be tested of what sort it is. Now, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Now, um, in case I forget to bring this up later. when this came up in men's prayer yesterday. One of the prayer requests was for a family member. They, they're saved, but uh, the, the prayer request was this person's just living their own life, not serving the Lord at all. And, um, you know, there was concern there. And so we, as we prayed, I, I told them, Well, I'm going to be talking about this tomorrow. And I, I think I'll use this family as an illustration because there's no works at all, living for themselves. That's this last person right here. Uh, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So in other words, this person lived for himself, and all the things that he had were for himself, and they're all burned up. But it doesn't mean he's not saved. And that's what needs to be, because everybody here knows somebody that they're wondering if they're saved or not saved because of their works. They don't see anything going on. Are you sure you're saved? Adam? I, I don't see it. Well, yeah, they're saved. Uh, let me use the analogy of Paul the Apostle. I think he's gonna have a pretty big treasure chest in heaven. What do you think? I think, I think so. What about the thief on a cross? Zip, nada, none. Deathbed conversion no time to get baptized, didn't have a sinner's prayer. He just said, remember me, Lord. He had no good works. Is he in heaven? Jesus said, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. He's in heaven, and he had no good works. Paul, on the other hand, is gonna have a big treasure chest. (laughs) Gonna hang out with Paul, (laughs) let him buy lunch. (laughs) Though it's difficult to know just what goes to make up the golden work or the stubble work, we are necessarily um, nevertheless informed of certain general areas in which God is particularly interested. I'll give you a couple. This one's from Hebrews 6.10 if you're taking notes. How we treat other believers. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work. And your labor of love, which you have showed towards His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister to. Well, the Lord is saying, I'm not forgetting that you're sharing with people. I'm writing it down. Good bookkeeper, and um, I'm that um, you're loving on the brethren. This one's from Matthew ten, verses forty-one and forty-two. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward and whosoever shall give to drink one of these little um ones a cup of water now that we're just giving somebody a glass of water in Jesus' name now sometimes when people do that I'm saying you you got your motive is wrong here you're not you don't You're not giving him this water because you want me to have water. You just want more treasure in heaven. I know what you're up to. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. And whoever shall give to drink one of these little ones a cup of water in the name of a disciple or the Lord, verily I say unto you, he shall no wise lose his reward. Uh, Here's one in Hebrews 13. How we exercise our authority over others. The Bible says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself uh, for they watch for your souls as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. That's Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Let me give you an example of this with Paul and a Corinthian church. Basically what Paul is, is writing to them and it'll come back to me later is he's, he says he's... Um, Writing this letter of exhortation about this guy who had sinned in the church. And he told me he had to be removed. And he says, I'm writing this letter to test you, to see if you will be obedient. Now, just by saying that, it's implying that Paul has authority and that they are to respect that authority and do what he asks them to do. And uh, I'll stumble across it later. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 at this point. Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 11 and 12. We read, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. This is becoming more prominent as time goes on when it comes to born-again Christians. You see, you're part of the problem. And um, and that persecution is on the rise. But the Lord says, "Blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted. You don't back down. You stand your ground." And they say all kinds of evil things against you falsely. Well, what we're speaking is the truth. They just don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way. You narrow-minded, bigoted, hypocrite. Jesus is the only way. Yes, Jesus is the only way. Well, I don't like that. Well, I'm sorry. That's what God's word says. Um, and they say it falsely for my sake. What does the Lord say? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is what? Your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're reading Jeremiah. He's thrown into prison at least five times. The one that we studied yesterday is they threw him into a pit of mire and he was up to here and sunk in the mire because he wouldn't change God's word. He said, Nebuchadnezzar is gonna come to Jerusalem and destroy it. The best thing you can do is capitulate and don't fight it. Let it happen. But if you do fight it, you're gonna die. But the false prophets were saying just the opposite. False prophets were saying, ah, Don't worry about it. You think God is going to allow Solomon's temple to be destroyed? No way. And so what they did is they made these cords and they lowered them down into the pit, the people that were believing Jeremiah. That's why they they call him the weeping prophet. He was given messages that people really didn't want to hear. And they pulled them out. And they pulled them out of this miry pit. Why? Why? because he was speaking God's word exactly what was going to happen. And guess what? It happened exactly as God said it was going to happen. Matter of fact, Daniel would have been taken during this period of time. He was there in Babylon the whole 70 years, and if you read the first verse of Daniel 9, he after 70 years, he said, oh, Lord, I'm reading Jeremiah, And the first verse of Daniel 9-1 says, I understood because I was reading the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years are determined upon your people. Well, Lord, 70 years has come and 70 years is gone. When do we get to go home? And then he prays this beautiful prayer of repentance. And um, um, as you know, that's when they were allowed to return home. So blessed are you. Um, when you're persecuted, great will be your reward. Another is how many souls we witness to and lead to the Lord. Um, This is one of the major ones. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, it says this. And they that are wise will shine as the brightness of the firmament And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now what I think this means is when you witness to somebody, if you're wise, you see this is the wisdom, what's really important, is leading people to Christ. And that person that you led to Christ is gonna live forever just like you're gonna live forever. Well, I don't know what, we're gonna be fellowshipping about when we get to heaven but it might be, well, how'd you get here? (laughs) Who led you to the Lord? I don't know. But um, you will have that acknowledgement as Daniel says here, that you will shine for the people that you have led to the Lord and they will be eternally grateful that God used you as a human instrument I'll tell you a short story that happened to me. Uh, this guy called about three weeks ago. He called the office, said his name was John, and um, he wanted me to call him back. He said I had led him to the Lord um, in one of our communal houses in 1975. So I got busy doing stuff, and I, I didn't, didn't call him for two weeks. So I, fi- I finally called this guy up, and I said, hi, your name is John, this is Dwight. And you, you called and you wanted, you wanted me to call you back. And I said, I'm calling back. And he said, um, do you remember me? And I said, no, will you tell me who you are? And he said, well, um, you were living in a Shiloh house at Alders Street in 1975. I was 17 years old. I was out on the streets. Didn't have a place to stay. Didn't have a, uh, any food. And he when I knocked on the Shiloh House door, you opened it up, and said, "Come on in." <laughs> and um, the way he tells the story, that um, um, I led him to Christ when he was 17 years old, and that was 47 years ago. And he's telling me songs that he he said, Dwight, Dwight, will you still? When you sing that song that you always used to sing and he named it, I wrote it. I don't remember what I don't have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but he was he was remembering even songs. Well, he not only got saved, but he went on to our, our Bible school, and um, he is just totally on fire for the Lord. But the Lord put it on his heart to call me because he remembers songs that I sang and wrote, and I don't have a clue. And I said, "Um, um, what do you look like? (laughs) Will you send me a picture? And he says, well, I'm all dragged out right now. And he says, I'm "I'm black. And I says, well, great, I like like dregs. (laughs) Is that what they call them? Yeah, I think so. And anyway, we're in contact, and I was telling this story to John Higgins, who was uh, uh, over all of the Shiloh houses. And he said, I'm curious, let's talk to this guy. So we had exchanged phone numbers. We called John in his office, and we talked to this guy for 45 minutes. And um, he's, after all these years, he's on fire for the Lord and couldn't stop talking about the Lord and what the Lord's got him doing this and doing that. And, and it really made John's day. We had, our classes were set up in sets. So A set, B set, C set. And uh, John said, well, what set were you on? And he said, "Kset." And for some reason, that just really made John's day. He's, this guy, John, said, I met you, John, one time. It would, first, in the Calvary Chapel movement, be like meeting Pastor Chuck for the first time. So he says, I met you one time, John. You were walking to your car. And what I remember is how gracious you were to me. You didn't know who I was. I was just a young kid going to, 18-year-old kid going to Bible school but you took time to to talk with me and and spend some time, and I just want you to know that really meant a lot to me. And getting to talk to you now is the same way. Okay, I got a little sidetracked there. Um, I don't remember any of this. I don't know who he is, but he sure remembers. So in 1 Corinthians 3, let's go back there. 1 Corinthians 3, Um, verse 14 we've already covered this if anyone's work which he has built on endures he will receive a reward and I already used the analogy with Paul and the thief on the cross and um, um, the the family member uh, being saved in verse 15 some possible rewards that I think are hidden in the book of Revelation if you turn to chapters 2 and 3 Of Revelation, we have seven letters. The Lord appears to John on an island called Patmos. The year is 94 AD. And Jesus appears to John and he tells him um, the key to the book of Revelation is verse 19. He says, John, I want you to write the things which you have seen. That would be chapter one. Then write the things that are present tense, the church age, John was in the church age, and then write the things which will take place after this, in other words, after the church is raptured. Um, And then he writes this first letter to the church of Ephesus, and every one of the churches has a different promise given to it, and I think it has to do with the rewards that we could receive. The first one is in verse seven. Um, The Lord says to the church of Ephesus, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We haven't heard about the tree of life since the book of Genesis. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned that the Lord put an angel with a sword that went every which way lest Adam and Eve would come back into the garden and eat of the tree of life. And you don't hear about it anymore. Here we hear about it. And one of the rewards possibly here is actually, um, it's like Paul trying to explain things in heaven. He says, can't do it. Things I heard, I can't put in human words. To the church of Smyrna, in verse 10, there's this promise. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown, the crown of life. So where do you get the crown of life? I believe at the judgment seat of Christ. If you go to verse 17, to the church of Pergamos, Verse 17 says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some hidden manna to eat. So we eat in heaven, but it's a hidden manna. Um, And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. You're going to get a new name. It's going to be written on a white stone. Where are you going to get it? I think at the judgment seat of Christ. Then, into the church of Thyatira, verses 26 to 28, we read, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and potter's vessels shall be broken in pieces, and as I also received from my Father. After the judgment seat of Christ, we're in heaven for that period of seven years, but then we come down to earth, where there's a a new earth, and we're going to rule and reign with him. Well, what does that mean? Well, to me it means that we have areas of responsibility um, wherever the Lord places us on this planet, Um, I don't know if you want to call them um, magistrates or whatever, but it's evidently a position of authority that's been given to us as one of the promises here as he rules over the earth we do it with him for that thousand year period of time. Now chapter 3 we have the church of Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The promise to Sardis is found in verse 5 he who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels so your name is actually going to be mentioned whether it's your new one or old one I don't know (laughs) and um, here is what promise of this church to the church of Philadelphia verse 12 he who overcomes I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name mean Jesus is going to have a new name? That's what it says. To the last one, to the church of Laodicea, the promise is in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down on my fathers on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The judgment seat of Christ, it has to happen. It's clearly foretold many times in the scriptures. Now some people say that there's no reference to the church in the Old Testament. I believe there is and I'm gonna give you an example of that and we'll start to wind things up with this. Notice I said the word start. (laughs) And I want you to turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. I believe we have an Old Testament picture of the judgment seat of Christ in these four chapters in the book of Ruth. I'm just going to explain chapter one and get into more detail in chapter two. When we go to Israel, we go to the shepherd's fields, and this is where um, Naomi and her husband, um, Elimelech, uh, that's where they lived. And um, so as it, opens up we're introduced to Naomi and she's married to her husband Elimelech they have um, two sons verse 5 Malion and Chilion Um, Elimelech dies and then they have a famine in the land and so they have to sell their house and um, um they move to Moab and um there, Melian um, and Chilion took two wives that were Gentiles. They're from Moel. But then they die. So now you have her husband and her two sons both dead. And 10 years goes, goes by. And she heard a report after 10 years that Bethlehem once again is going barley and wheat and she says I'm going home I have nothing here and um, one of the girls in verse uh, 14 Orpah um, Naomi says I want you girls to go home stay in your land here Um, and Orpah does that but Ruth On the other hand, wouldn't go. I use the scripture when we do weddings. This was her response, Ruth to Naomi Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. So she's going. And when Naomi realized she couldn't talk her out of it, she says, okay, let's go. So they come back, and we read in the last verse that when they were coming back into Bethlehem, it was the beginning of the barley harvest. And when everybody saw her, the whole town was in an uproar. They said, Naomi, you're back. and We're so glad to see you. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Bara." And uh, that means bitter. She says, I left, but um, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter, we're introduced to a man named Boaz. And um, we're told he's a kinsman. That means he's a relative in the family. So he would be Jewish, um, he was very wealthy, and his name was Boaz, and he had many fields in the, what we call the shepherd's fields today in Bethlehem. And um, they don't have any money. And one of the, the laws in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, when you glean your field, in other words, when you go out to harvest your field, you can glean everything except the corners. You couldn't glean the corners. He had to leave them alone. That was sort of the welfare program they had for the poor. Because a poor person who had no money, they could go into anybody's field, and according to Leviticus 25, they could glean all they wanted. And so, um, Ruth is gleaning in the fields of Boaz. I like this in verse four. Here's the boss coming to work in the morning. And as he's riding up to see all of his workers in the field working, uh, he says to in verse four, hey, the Lord be with you. When's the last time your boss greeted you that way when you came to work? And the answer was, hey, the Lord bless you too. (laughs) And um, all of a sudden, he he looks and he sees Ruth. Now, I can't prove it, but I think it was love at first sight. And... um, he basically said who's the new girl gleaning in the field? And he said well this is, this is uh, the Moabite girl that came back with Naomi. And um, he goes and talks to the boys who are in the field. He said hands off, don't touch her. And then he goes and he introduces himself to um, Ruth and he says I tell you what, I've just talked to the boys. And I told them, they're to let you glean every day. I don't want you to go to anybody else's fields. I want you to stay here. And I also told them to do this. Not only can you glean the corners, but they can glean, you can glean right in the field itself. And then, this is what else I want you to do. As you get your grain, I want you to take some of it and do this. For those of you who are... Watching live stream, you didn't see what it, maybe what I just did. It's called handfuls on purpose. In other words, they're purposely dropping grain so that Ruth can have a whole lot of uh, grain to take home to Naomi. Now, what we have here, let's pick it up in verse eight. Um, then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Don't go to glean in another field. Don't go from here, but... Stay close by the young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink for what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. Well, she's not only a foreigner, she's a Gentile. Now, this is going to be important for our story. And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and now how you have uh, left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, Moab, and you have come to a people whom you do not know. Now, verse 12, the Lord repay your work. For a full reward be given to you by the Lord of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Here's where it's a picture. Did not Jesus say that the volume of the book is all about him? Boaz is called a kinsman redeemer. And only a family member could repurchase a piece of property. Um, You never really... They had to sell the house, but they could go back at any time and buy it back. But Naomi doesn't have the money. Boaz has the money, and he's called here a kinsman redeemer, and it had to be a family member. So now you have a family member going back, and he redeems a property that once belonged to Elimelech and Naomi, and he has the right and the authority and the money <laughs> to do it, and so He does. And then um, Naomi comes, uh, Ruth comes to Naomi and she looks at uh, what she gleaned that day and said, where in the world were you gleaning to bring this much back? And she said, well, this guy's name was Boaz and she says, Boaz, he's family. And um, she encourages uh, um, uh, Ruth to I don't know any other way to say it except um, she she actually proposes <laughs> in a way uh, to Boaz because when the harvest was over they had a big party and what Boaz would do is they would go and sleep by uh, all their barley just to protect it every man would sleep by his and so Naomi says this is what I want you to do Ruth when he's asleep. I want you to sneak in, uncover his feet, and I want you to just um, cover yourself up and just stay there. And uh, Boaz wakes up. Who Who's down there? Oh, it's, it's Ruth. Oh, it's Ruth. Oh, it's Ruth. <laughs> it's Ruth. <laughs> Verse 10 of chapter three. Blessed are you, uh, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after younger men. So, evidently, Boaz was older, whether rich or poor. And um, now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do uh, what you are requesting. Well, what she was requesting, well, she was making herself available for marriage. And um, for I know that you're a virtuous woman. Um, I think this is the only place virtuous woman is mentioned in the scriptures. I could be wrong. Um, But he said he's going to take care of business. So what he does is he calls the the leaders of the city. He gets them to the gate and he lets them know that um, in the, the hearing of the elders that he has purchased everything that used to belong to Elimelech and I'm going to redeem it And I have the authority to do so. And that's the way they signed the contract for the purchase of of the property. It was known publicly. And so um, there was one other person who was closer in relationship to Naomi and Elimelech. And um, it's in verse six of chapter four. And Boaz said, well, you know, Um, well let's read verse 5 too on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess the wife of the dead to raise up the name of the dead and his inheritance and then your kinsman said so Boaz has found this guy that's closer in relation than himself and he tells them well you can buy it back the guy says good idea he says, but the day that you do, you gotta marry Ruth too. And he says in verse six, I can't do it. I can't redeem it. My wife would kill me. <laughs> so here we have the story. And here, bear with me as we paint the picture of this Old Testament picture of what I believe is the judgment seat of Christ. Boaz is a kinsman and redeemer. He is a type of Jesus Christ. He has the authority to redeem a Gentile. Jews marry Jews. Jews don't marry Gentiles. Ruth is a Gentile. So Jesus is a type of Jesus, Boaz is. He's a kinsman redeemer, we call him our redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives. Ruth on the other hand, is a Gentile who falls in love and has been redeemed by Boaz, the redeemer. And why does he do this? Why does he show attention to her? Oh, when they first met, remember? It's been fully reported of who you are. And may the Lord reward you for what you've done in showing kindness to Naomi. And basically, we have the whole picture of. Jesus redeeming us, being rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. He marries a Gentile. We're called the bride of Christ. Is everybody tracking with me? I believe it's a beautiful picture of being rewarded and being married to Jesus Christ is our bride. And we talk about this personal name being given to us. I, I believe it's intimacy. And... Um, Maybe you call your sweetie your sweetie when you're, you're not around friends or you have an intimate name that uh, you share that nobody else knows. And that's what I believe is going on here. When you get a new name, it's, it's meant to be personal because you're, you're, we're his bride. And so we have this Old Testament picture, and, but I am gonna close it up with this verse. We need to go to John chapter four John 4, picking it up in verse 34. Here we have the woman at the well. And you're all pretty familiar with the story. She was a Samaritan. Jesus said he had to to go there. And um, she eventually, in talking with the Lord, believes that he is the Messiah, because she comes right out and asks him, In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And she goes into the city as the disciples are coming out to meet Jesus. She left her water pot, and she goes and starts witnessing to everybody in town. And as a result, the whole town comes out and wants to hear what Jesus has to say. But before we get to that part, let's tie this in with the, import, the importance of witnessing and the Great Commission. We read in verse 34, Jesus said to them, the disciples thought he was hungry, and the Lord says, well, I have food to eat that you don't know of. And they're looking around at each other and said, who, who gave him a sandwich, or who gave him something to eat here? And he says, no, you guys aren't getting it at all. I have food that you don't know about that I get from my father. My food, it's verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are white for harvest. Where is he when he's saying this? He's in Samaria, Gentile land. These are Samaritans. And what is the field representative of those people in the field? He says, I must be about my father's business. But don't tell me his harvest time is four four months away. No. There it is right there. People out here. When we leave these doors this morning, people out there. People that you work with out there. And he says, he who reaps, notice this, Verse 36, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Question, where do you gather your wages? At the judgment seat of Christ. For those people that you have talked to, you have shared with, whether they accept the Lord or not, you're just planting seeds. Maybe somebody else will come along and water them and they get saved. But the Lord saw the seeds that you planted And Jesus is now pointing to them the real harvest, the real work. Uh, Men um, like to identify um, when they're asked a question, what do you do? Usually, say, your job. (laughs) And your answer should be, well, I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me, that will get their attention. And they'll have one or two responses. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if they blow you off, you've planted a seed. If they say, what are you talking about? You have an open door. And take advantage of it and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. Remember the word says his word will not return void. So I like to feel people out a little bit to get to know them. Try to break the ice a little bit to see where they're at. Find some common ground. What did Paul say? I will become all things to all men so I might win them. The people that bother me are the ones that go in with guns blasting, both barrels going. And they're doing all the talking and the guy's just gotta sit there and take it until he's done yakking. No, asking questions. This whole story of the woman in the well, it starts out when she says, "Um, um, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are we talking, we don't like each other. So what does Jesus do? He begins to break her down, little by little. And he says, well, um, if you knew the gift of God, and the water that he has to give, would you be asking me for water right now? Well, what are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket, or how are you gonna get water out of the well? And he says, see, he's got to ask you questions now. He says, I tell you what, you go get your husband, and I'll tell you. Well, I don't have a husband. You know, that's right. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy right now so I guess you're telling me the truth. How do you know that? Nobody knows that. And all of a sudden, she called him a Jew at first and then she called him Sir secondly and then she calls him a prophet because he knew. Do you see the change from Jew to Sir to a prophet? And then... What was deep down inside, and you need to know, my friends, as we close up this morning, that whether they'll admit it or not, deep down inside, they have questions. Deep down inside, now more than ever, uh, people have questions. What's really going on? And as a result, she finally figures out that this guy knows what he's talking about. And so she says to him, you know, there's a rumor going around that the Messiah has come and um, when he comes, he's gonna tell us all things and then the Lord just lets it all out. And um, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jew, sir, prophet, Messiah. And then the horn rang and we're all raptured. (laughs) Right on cue. I called this guy last night and I said exactly at five. <laughs> You're not buying that one. The harvest is great, my friends. The, the harvest is great. The hour is late. Redeem the time is what we're told to do. And as we go through this study this morning, there will be the judgment seat of Christ. I hope you have a lot of stuff that doesn't perish. And um, we don't waste our time when we could have time to take advantage of the time and see just how later it is. Take it, just encourage you to um, the people that the Lord has put in the back of your head to witness to. Yeah, you'll be laughed at. Some people will call you a fool. Everybody, somebody's fool. Isn't that what the song says? Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ. So if you're gonna be a fool, at least be one for the Lord, amen? Yeah. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. In this beautiful picture of Boaz and Ruth, as we have been redeemed, you have, as Boaz has redeemed Ruth, so you have redeemed us, your Gentile bride. And we know that, as we sang earlier, that someday we're gonna see your face. And it's gonna be something that we long to see. And we have every assurance from your word that none of our sins will ever be brought up, will never be put to shame. But instead, um, it'll be the Bema Seat, where We will receive um, rewards for those things that were done with the right motive in your name. Amen.